Secure Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full informed investment decision. This is your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMV. Now, here's Joe Anderson and Big Al Clopine. Hey, welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money or Wealth. My name's Joe Anderson. I am a certified financial planner professional, practitioner. I'm with um, Alan Clopine. He's a CPA. Thanks for tuning in. Go to our website, if you would like, at purefinancial.com, purefinancial.com. Uh, or go to iTunes if you want to listen to the podcast. Uh, you can go to iTunes, Your Money or Wealth, uh, right there on iTunes. Answering some uh, questions. And uh, from Investopedia. Okay. Got a new... It's a Labor Day weekend. Yes. Labor Day weekend questions. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, we're just... Um, yeah. Answer- this is hour number two. It's... Uh, I don't know. Some, it feels a little bit lighter, hour two, for some reason. I guess because we're warmed up, huh? Is that what that is? Maybe. Well, um, stick around. We got Larry Spudrill coming up in uh, probably half an hour. Yeah. The bottom of the hour. Sure. And uh, we'll see if Larry will stick around for a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. Because we got a lot of questions for him. Yeah. He can talk about the optical... <laughs> Illusion of it's called the cause of myopic loss aversion. Okay, you got to hear about that. Actually, more importantly, though, Joe is I want to get him talking about why, if you look at your portfolio too often, it hurts your returns. It's like a bar of soap. Yes, the more you use it, the less you have. Yeah, what was that guy's name that said that? Joe Anderson. No, no, just said it. I know. But <laughs> your mentor, I forget his name oh, right mentor. now. Don Connolly. Yeah, Don Connolly. Right? Yeah. Uh, can the IRS? All right, so here's a couple questions. Now okay. we're going back to the emails. Okay. Uh, can the IRS take the property from my trust if the IRS has claim on an individual that received benefits from a trust? Can the IRS take those uh, proceeds or property? So let me see if I can understand this. So, so the IRS uh, has has a claim. Internal Revenue Service. Yes. Yeah. I, okay. Right. Let me. Glad you clarified that. <laughs> Can they take the property of the trust and the IRS has claims on the trust already? No, I believe the the, the IRS is what this individual is saying is that he's got claims from the IRS. He probably inherited some. He Can an individual that receives benefits from a trust, Yes. can the IRS take those benefits? Oh, can they take those benefits? Yeah, after I think it's distributed from the trust and it's now your property, I would say yes. Yeah, they can. However, they they generally don't take your property. They work with you to work out an installment plan or a compromise or some kind of way that you can pay that tax liability. So in my experience, Joe, the IRS only comes after properties when you don't cooperate, when you don't talk with them about how to get this thing paid off. And I'm believing that this is what the case is. Yes. Yeah. Because they already got a claim. Yeah. <laughs> It's too late. And so he's like, okay, well, man, they got a claim on me. They're already taking this. So, but wait a minute, I'm getting some more stuff, right, from this trust. Yeah, maybe that's exempt. Yeah, I mean, they have. Uh, I believe the IRS can pretty much take all your property. I mean, within certain exceptions, and unless I, you don't own the property. So, if you have it in an irrevocable trust, but, right? But, but they could have claim to the income. Sure. Yeah, that comes I, to you exactly. Is, and once it's distributed out, and I, I think, think that's what, what that's he's saying. basically saying. Right? Yeah. Right. Um, a couple of other things when it comes to credit protection. Yeah. IRAs, right? So 
under ERISA plans and things like your 401k, if I file bankruptcy, um, and most of those plans, and I'm not going to get into detail there, if I'm the owner of that plan, in most cases, those would be protected from creditors. Right. Okay. Now, once I die and those become a beneficiary IRA, this was just a ruling what last year, is that now those benefits are not creditor protected to right. the non-spouse or right. to the heirs. So the kids get your IRA and then the your creditors have access to that. Or the kids' creditors would kid, have kids. access. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Said more exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's ways to protect that um, as well. Yeah. Uh, but that's another topic. Well, that's for an IRA show. trust. You don't want to get into that. No, not really. <laughs> okay. I got plenty more here. Okay. How much can I collect in widow's benefit, Alan? Okay. All right. I became disabled in 2010 at age 52, and I'm collecting my own Social Security. Okay. I'm widowed. And was told at 60 that I could draw on my husband's Social Security. Right. Do you have any idea how much extra that would be? <laughs> and do I need to do anything before the changes are made? If there is any way of collecting more, I can't afford to miss out on it. Got it. So also, can I change the date I receive my monthly check? I receive it so late in the month and all my bills are always late. <laughs> Well, the second part of that question, no, you're going to get your check when you get it. But uh, Joe, well, you can't pick and choose your date on Social Security. Uh, not that I know of. You can't say I want it on the 15th. I don't think so. Anyway, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I have to look it up. So the first part of the question, yeah, you can take a widower's benefit starting at age 60. Joe, you got to help me out though, because I don't know how it's a reduced benefit. I don't know how much reduced it is over if you wait till age 66. All right, so a couple of different things. There's something that's called a spousal benefit, and there's a survivor benefit. The survivor benefit is going to, or the, the, the spousal benefit, still people have confusion here, is that you can take yours or your spouse's, or half of your spouse's, whichever's larger. So if you're married, or had been married to someone for 10 years, you Correct. can claim on the ex-spouse as long as you haven't remarried. Correct. So in this case, she's a widow. So she was taking a disability benefit at age 52. You can take the survivor or the widow's or widower's benefit at age 60. As long as you're not working, you can take it at 60. Yes, it would be a reduced benefit from the full retirement age, but I would imagine depending, if she's already taking it at 52, I'm not sure how old the husband was right? or the, or the wife. Does it say that it's a boy or a girl? Okay, well, Pat, I guess. Pat. <laughs> so, whatever. It's always Pat. Yeah. So, the spouse, I'm not sure. So, if I'm 52, my spouse has already passed. And it could be. Is maybe it going to be more? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe the spouse is 80. Well, sure. Yeah. So, you have to look at the benefits. We don't know this. I mean, right. you have to look at, all right, well, what's your benefit? What's the survivor benefit? And then if you take it early, so what is that going to look like on the widow or widower's benefit? Yes. And if you're, but it sounds like she's not still working. So, um, yeah. And, and part of that calculation is, well, if you wait till 66, you get a higher benefit. And maybe the incremental benefit that you might get at age 60 isn't enough to outweigh waiting to 66 to get a higher benefit the rest of your life. So you got to look at all those calculations. Yeah. I would say that there's opportunity here, but we need more information. Um, we got to see what's your, you know, social security benefit. What's your disability benefit now? What was the survivor's benefit? Um, and so then you can compare the two and then do you, and then when, when should you take it? Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know about 
<laughs> I don't think changing you, the date I don't when think you receive you, your I don't check. think you have any control over that. I don't know. I've, I've, <laughs> I never, been, I've asked never been asked that question. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going on my gut on that one. <laughs> I think you can. <laughs> we'll have to check it out and see. <laughs> but what difference does it make? Well, because she's behind. She wants it earlier. But it's the same money per month. I know. But she she basically wants like a month in, in advance so she can pay her bills. So she's, but she's spending too... Okay. Yes, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> All right. Okay, what else you got? I got this. Can I re-gift a stock? Oh, re-gifter. Re-gift. A re-gifter. Yep, okay. Seinfeld. I was gifted a stock in 2014. The individual who gifted the stock to me is under financial hardship now. Yes. And I would like to give those stocks back to them. Regift it. Is yeah. this legal? Yeah, it's legal. That's fine. How would I go about this? The stock is under the specific amount for taxes as well. So I mean that probably means it's under fourteen thousand. I guess that's what yeah, you could do that. I don't see a problem with that. So all right, Al, I give you fifty thousand dollars in stock. Okay. Okay. That was twenty fourteen. Twenty sixteen, oops. Right. Run a little problem. Yes. You could gift that fifty thousand right back to me. Sure I could. But it yeah. would still it would be under the same rules of any other gift. It doesn't necessarily matter. The IRS doesn't care where you got that money from. Yeah, but if the gift is over fourteen thousand dollars, the person that gave you the stock has to file a gift tax return. And then you have to file a gift tax return to give it back to right. the individual. Well so make it easier. Let's say it's ten thousand. So <laughs> okay. it's under the exclusion amount. Yes, right. So then you give me ten thousand and then all of a sudden you need the money back a couple years later, I can give it back to you or I give you cash back to you or I can give any other asset for that matter back to Correct. you. Correct. Now, there's some in some cases you can't uh, take a gift back. Like if you have an irrevocable trust and you give that money to the trust, that's a one-way street. Or there's a thing called a donor-advised fund. If you want to set up a charitable fund for future contributions to charity and you want to take a deduction in the current year, you put money into that account and you get the tax deduction this year and then over time you get to decide who gets those monies. Well, you can't take that back. So there are certain kinds of gifts that you can't take back, but just a straight gift, sure. A lot of questions, a lot of answers here on uh, today's show. If you have any questions, you can always go to purefinancial.com and ask any question that you like there on our website. Um, we got to take another break. show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. This is Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Welcome back to the show. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson, Big Al, hanging out on a Labor Day weekend. Hopefully you are enjoying your weekend. I know Al and I are having a ball here in the studio today. And I got to tell you, um, Al and I have been doing this show close to 10 years. Al's been a CPA for over 30. I'm a certified financial planner. I've been helping people with their financial needs since, I forget, 1997, 1998. Yeah, so you're almost 20 years. Something almost like 20 years 17 in. years, 18 years. Yeah, yeah. Like I forget when the actual date. Okay. I just I, knew I wanted to be over five years. So I know, I'm my well date, over that. February 11th, uh, 1980. Wow. Why <laughs> See, would you... Accountant never forgets. Why would you know that? I have no idea. Because I remember stuff like that. But you can't remember someone's name after you no. met them 15 minutes ago. That is true. What is your name? <laughs> <laughs> Alan, I got interviewed uh, recently. You did? Yes, I did. Okay. And they asked me, was Joe... All right, you're a certified financial planner, president, peer financial advisors. You have X amount of experience. We want to ask you a couple of questions. Okay. Here's the question. They're talking about high fees in 401k plans. Okay. Then they said, well, as you may or may not know, smaller employers might have larger fees than larger employers. And so what do you think 
that that individual should do. Because of course, lower fees means a lot more money. So should that person just not invest in that 401k plan and look for low cost options outside? So that's the question, right? Okay. That was proposed to me. Got it. And okay. I'm thinking, I don't know what they wanted to hear from me. Sure. <laughs> because of course we're big proponents of low cost. Yes. You know, investing, try to stay away from the the big commissions and the big fees and everything else. And I said, you know what? To be honest with you, I said I don't care what the fees are in the four hundred one k plan. Take advantage of it. What do you mean? <laughs> I was like, well, first of all, if you take a look at the average savings balance of someone's retirement account, it's abysmal. So. A 401k plan will allow someone to put something directly from their paycheck into an account that will grow 100% tax deferred. And then when they can pull the money out, yeah, then they'll have to pay taxes on it. We talk all about taxes. But the point is, is that a 401k plan is out of sight, out of mind. Right. Or they can go to Vanguard or another firm and all of a sudden they have to set up their own account and send them a check every month. Which one do you think is going to get funded? The 401k plan or their other account at a low-cost mutual fund company? Yeah, certainly the 401k because they never got the money in the first place. Right, they couldn't spend it. Right. So it's like, no, the 401k plan, plus you can also put $18,000 pre-tax into the 401k plan. And then if you're over 50, you can put $24,000. You can max that plan out. Uh, you know, how about it? Well, they, how about if the company doesn't match? You still would um, recommend that? Absolutely. I go. You're missing the point. I go. All right. So let's say I'm in a smaller employer that my fees and my mutual funds are a, a point and a half, or I could go to a low cost option that's fifty basis points. So I'm paying one percent more over here. I go. Okay, but what do you think is the biggest problem? Is it fees or is it investor behavior? So now I'm on my own. I'm at this own brokerage account, and I'm, I'm funding this account versus my 401k, right? Most people that fund a 401k, do you think they look at it daily? No. If I have my own brokerage account that I'm funding out of my own cash, do you think I might look at that a little bit more than my 401k? Yeah, certainly you would. Certainly I would, right? Yeah, because that feels more painful. Yes! Right, it's like I have to cut the check, and right, I, I've already had possession of the money. Now I'm giving it to this brokerage account versus it comes directly from my check. I didn't even see it. I don't even know how much money I have in my 401k. Right? Yeah. I'm like, you're missing the point. Yes, fees are important, but it's not the end all that be all. Right. You have to have a disciplined process to get money into the plan first of all, and then you can't be playing with it all the time. So I don't know if they cared for my answers, but I think that was the right answer yeah, to say. I, I actually, Joe, I, I agree with everything you said because, and we know, and we, we sometimes talk to younger people about what's the most important way to save for the future. And the first and foremost strategy is to pay yourself first. And to pay yourself first so that it's automatic, so you don't even think about it. So if you have a 401k, it comes out of your pay, out of sight, out of mind. If you don't have a 401k, we'll set up an automatic withdrawal from your checking account, something like that. Because when it comes to retirement, you got to build some kind of cash flow right you, you got it yeah, right no, no one's saving yeah no no one's saving and when you start tapping your retirement nest egg there's all kinds of rules uh, but if you don't have a retirement nest egg you got nothing to tap don't right? worry about it yeah you're broke <laughs> but if you have done that and we think 401ks are a great strategy uh, in most cases then uh, you'll start paying taxes at your regular rates uh, even in retirement so as you near retirement tax planning becomes more important than ever, but you must use a forward-thinking tax strategy. And maybe if you're still working, maybe you got to consider a Roth option in your 401k as opposed to a regular 401k because of your tax bracket. You want to take a look at these things, but you got to look forward. you got to figure out what's going to make the most sense for you. Now back to your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 AFMB. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Show's called Your Money or Wealth. Uh, my name's Joey Anderson. I'm a certified financial planner. I'm with Alan Klopine. He's a CPA. And we have uh, Larry Swedjo on the line. Larry's been on the show multiple, multiple times. Good friend of the show. He's written several books on investing, financial planning. Uh, he's director of research of Buckingham in the BAM Alliance that manages, what, Larry, $16, $17 billion of assets or even more than that? And we're approaching 28. Twenty-eight billion, wasn't it? Just like sixteen last year. And I think it was a bit higher, but <laughs> yeah, we crossed ten billion uh, a couple of times in '08. Once on the or '07, once on the way up, and once on the way down. And we've been growing pretty steadily since then. Well, I appreciate your time. I know you're a very busy guy. The last time we t- well, it wasn't the last time. I think it was last year when we were talking about your last book. Uh, but then now we have another book coming out. Let's talk a little bit about. Um, a, what's this new book about, and what made you write it again, or write another one again, I guess? Yeah, so uh, the book is called Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing. Uh, the academic literature, really since 1992, when Gene Fahm and Ken French wrote their famous paper, The Cross-Section of Expected Returns, and added small and value as factors, uh, they call them, that helped explain the returns of portfolios um, that we that really changed forever the way we think about investing. We went from thinking about just diversifying between stocks and bonds to now diversifying across asset classes, meaning large cap and small cap value and growth, made the world much more complex, but opportunities for advisors like you, Joe, to help your clients by adding value through superior design, better diversification of portfolios. But the academic research didn't end there, and over the last 20-plus years now, we've actually had papers published to the extent that John Cochran, a University of Chicago professor, uh, called it a, a zoo of factors with over 600 of them identified. So my concern was how does the average investor figure out which exhibits in that factor zoo should they be interested in looking at and considering. So I thought it would be a good idea to help provide a framework for people to think about. And we identify uh, eight factors in the book, six for stocks and two for bonds. And we give people a framework that says in order for you to consider a factor, it should have evidence of persistence, meaning it exists with a premium above market return for a very long time across economic cycles. It's pervasive around the globe, meaning we're not lucky it was just the U.S. outcome, perhaps. Even better if it's pervasive across asset classes. So, for example, the momentum factor works in stocks, bonds, commodities, and currencies. The value factor works the same way across asset classes. So that gives you more confidence it's not data mining. Uh, It should be robust is the term I use, meaning it can hold up to various definitions. So, for example, Fama and French use price-to-book ratio as a definition of value. But a price-to-earnings or price-to-cash flow, for example, didn't work. I would be suspicious that it was just the data mining, a lucky outcome. Uh, But as it turns out, we can use one of four or five different metrics for value. Uh, And the same thing applies to 
you know, uh, things like momentum and quality and profitability, these other factors that we recommend. It should also be implementable, meaning it holds up after transactions cost. And lastly, it should have a intuitive reason to believe it should persist in the future, meaning that there should be a good risk-based explanation, just like stocks are riskier than bonds. So we expect, but aren't guaranteed that stocks will outperform, uh, that we should have a risk-based explanation for these premiums and or a behavioral explanation uh, that should hold up. So the book goes through all of these uh, issues for every one of the factors we recommend uh, and then shows you the historical evidence. So looking at the traditional view, potentially, or I mean, for lack of a better word, kind of more active type management to try to add value, right? So it's looking at timing markets or picking individual securities or different sectors of the market that maybe one individual thinks that is going to outperform. Uh, this has changed of how I, you know, certain advisors are, are adding value to their clients by looking at these factors of saying, hey, it's, it's difficult to time markets, it's difficult to predict the future, but if you look at these certain factors and construct a portfolio based on academic science, you'll have a higher probability of getting that alpha or outperformance than if you would if you use more of a traditional view. I mean, it, 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 does that make sense? Yeah, basically on the right line, I want to change a couple of the words. Uh, well, of course you do. There. Uh, <laughs> You're a smart to, guy. To make, I'm kind of an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> to, to make things clear for your audience. Uh, so we want to define alpha and beta here. So alpha means that your performance is above the market, but on a risk-adjusted basis. So if you buy small cap stocks and you outperform large stocks, that's not alpha. That's what an academic would call beta, which means simply you have exposure to this risk factor we call small cap stocks. So if you buy emerging market stocks and you outperform the S&P 500, that's not alpha. That's beta. Uh, that's exposure or beta to the emerging market risk. Same thing for value stocks, or if you buy long-term bonds instead of short-term bonds. That's loading on what's called the term factor. Each of these factors should have a premium. Often, you and I know, active managers claim alpha when they're really giving you beta, uh, meaning it's exposure to one of these common factors that a computer can give you exposure to simply by buying all of the securities that have that common trait, whether it's small stocks or value stocks which have low prices to earnings. So we want to make sure people are differentiating between alpha, which could be skill-based, but beta, which just is a systematic exposure to a common factor and doesn't involve any individual stock picking nor really any market timing either. Well, then now there's something that's called smart beta. What's your take? That's just factor investing with kind of a marketing ploy, isn't it? Well, uh, let me say it this way. 99% probably of what's called smart beta is nothing more than beta. Okay, And what that I mean by that is if you invest in small cap stocks and buy a Vanguard small cap fund that's based upon, say, an MSCI index, that isn't smart beta. That's taking more risk in small stocks. However, let's take two similar small cap funds, neither one of which does any stock picking or market timing. One, and let's even assume that both of them use the exact same index. But one is a pure indexer, which means they slavishly follow the index. When a stock leaves the index, they are forced to trade when everyone 
knows they're going to have to trade, so their cost of trading is high because everyone knows when they're going to trade and they must pay up to execute those trades. They are what an academic would call a buyer of liquidity and they have to pay up to get that. On the other hand, let's say Joe, because he's a much smarter guy, he builds a fund based on the same index, but he says, you know what, I don't have to trade on that exact day. I'm going to use a computer program called an algorithmic trading program, and I've got these 50 stocks that I need to sell and these 26 new additions that I need to buy, and I'll let the computer uh, send the signal to the market that I want to buy 100 shares of this, and I'm looking to sell 100 of that. But instead of taking the offer, I'm, I might give an example, say a bid is at $10 and an offer is at $10.10, well, instead of taking the offer at 1010, maybe you put in a bid of 1001 or 1002, slightly above the where the market bid is, and you hope that your bid gets it. But you don't care. You'll wait. Right. Uh, and so that, to me, is smart beta because it's patient trading and over time will outperform the index. Uh, let me give you one other example. Let's say an index includes all stocks. Uh, and academic research might show that certain types of stocks have poor returns. We know that the research shows that stocks under $2 have very poor returns. That IPOs generally have very poor returns on average. So you decide, I'm going to screen those out even if they're in an index because the academic research says that would deliver higher returns. That, to me, is smart beta. It has nothing to do with individual stock picking. You're not saying I'm going to buy this IPO and not that IPO, but a systematic replicable approach. So, yes, I do believe there is a thing that you can call smart beta, but 98, 99% of what the industry calls smart beta is marketing hype. We're talking to Larry Swedrow, folks. Hey, we got to take a quick break. When we get back, I want to see what Larry's take is on this uh, crazy election and what we should do with our money there. So don't go anywhere. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. We'll be back in just a second. Now back to Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the show. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson, Big Al. We're talking to Larry Swedrow. Larry, kind of a crazy um, time we're having here with this election coming right around the corner. What should, and, and I'm sure you get this question all the time. It's like, okay, well, here are the elections in November. Should I get out of the market? Should I stay in the market? What should I do? Um, give us a little perspective here of what our listeners should be doing in regards, because this election is, quite honestly, a little bit different, I think, than most. Well, uh, my thinking on this is uh, is to consider leaving the country because I think the Democrats have nominated the only person capable of losing to Donald Trump and the Republicans have nominated the only person capable of losing to Hillary Clinton. So I'm going to be miserable no matter who wins the election. And uh, So that's my thought on that. Uh, but from your investor's standpoint, which is, I'm sure, what they want to hear about, not my, uh, not my views on the election, here is what investors need to learn, and there is very good academic research on this subject. What we have found in uh, doing research on investor behavior is when the party you favor uh, is in power. So let's uh, think about the last eight years, and 
Joe, are you a Democrat? Did you vote Democrat or or Republican in the last two elections? Uh, Republican. So you voted Republican. So if you were like most people, you probably have had worse returns than your Democratic friends, assuming you have any. Uh, But, uh, you know, and uh, in the prior eight years, when George Bush was president, you probably outperformed them. And can you guess the single reason why that's true? Because I felt confident that my president was in office, or I felt unconfident that the president that I voted for is not in office. See, you you understate your intellectual capacity there. You got that exactly right. You're smarter than you think, Jeff. Not much, not much. Well, I read an article by Larry Swedro that yeah, he wrote. That, so that I, helps. When we're that, that helps. Larry. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, at, at any rate, the, here's what happens uh, when the party uh, uh, you vote for is in power. And so let's take uh, 2009, the first part of that year. Obama has just been elected. The economy's in the worst recession in the post-war era. Uh, And if you were a Democrat, you were much more likely to feel confident that the president and the country would do things to correct the problem and get out of it. And if you're confident, do you tend to trade more or less? In this case, you're much more likely to trade less. You're not likely to panic and sell. Right. Uh, on the other hand, the Republicans were much more nervous. In fact, all of the people I heard from during that period, literally everyone who was worried about the market were Republicans. And the reverse was true in 2000 to 2002. It was from Democrats who were worried that George Bush was going to kill the country and the economy wouldn't recover and everything else. So what the message for your listeners is never let your political views influence your investment decisions. You should have that well-thought-out investment plan uh, that has your asset allocation. And the only thing you should be doing is, one, rebalancing if necessary, and number two, tax managing if that opportunity does provide itself that you can harvest a loss. Those are the two things you should be doing. And the rest of it is to make sure you don't let your heart or your stomach, as the case may be, influence your investment decision. Well, and I think that's true with a lot of things, is that people will tend to listen and hear what they want to hear uh, versus the – and I forget what bias that is. Um, confirmation bias. Yeah, there you go. Confirmation bias. Uh, we tend to uh, – here's what happens. When people say something that we believe to be true, it agrees with our view of the world, what I call our narrative. We tend to say, look how smart that person is. That confirms my thinking. And you will then overweight that information. On the other hand, when somebody says something that disagrees with it, you get what is called cognitive dissonance. It causes you to react negatively, and you will tend to say, what an idiot this person is. That's got to be wrong. And you underweight what they what they say and so that creates big problems for for people because then they don't view things through clear lenses and I, that's a huge problem and when when you add investing on that right then then the emotion exactly. and everything else that goes with it i mean there's political views and that's one thing but then all of a sudden when you you're dealing with someone's money and they have all right well here inflation's going to go to double digits right we're going to have negative interest rates i'm going to you know buy gold and you know, bury it in my backyard and i got a generator and i got some land in montana and i got a, a hundred guns and ammo uh, yeah, and, and, had- and that's real you know yeah i've had many of those conversations let me give you a a great example. 
So in 2011, uh, Bill Gross announces that he's getting out of you know all treasuries. The yield on the 10-year was about 3.7%, and interest rates can only go one direction, meaning up, and everyone should get out of the bond market. Now, if you were a Republican and you're worried about this Democratic government with massive deficits, the Federal Reserve is printing money like crazy, you're hearing these commercials about this, you were more likely to have confirmation bias on what Bill Gross says, so you panic and sell and go to cash or very short-term instruments, and you miss out on one of the biggest bond rallies in history, and you're continually now rolling over your short-term investments and earning nothing. On the other hand, if you were a Democrat, you were saying, ah, you know, these guys, Gross doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. You know, that's wrong. Economy's fine. And you stayed and kept and you earned those higher returns. Uh, by staying in a longer-term bond fund. So, uh, that's the kind of thing. And just the last week, we've had two big articles from two big mo- uh, biggest money managing uh, companies in the world announcing, get out of the market. It's about to crash, you know, uh, for whatever reasons. And you know, my answer to people when they read that is, one, why are you reacting? And the answer is it confirms their views. And two, I ask them, do you think Warren Buffett cares what this guru says? In fact, he tells you to ignore all market forecasts because they have no value. And then ask yourself, what do you know that Warren Buffett doesn't know? Are you a smarter or a better investor than he is? And if you're honest, you will now ignore the very advice you were ready to act on. Well, and then you got this to, to, to put on top of it, Larry, is that um, your clients probably look very similar to our clients where uh, they're in retirement, maybe close to retirement. And especially when, when individuals are in retirement, living off of some of the income or they're generating income from their portfolios, they tend to look at their portfolio a little bit more. They might have a little bit more time. And then that portfolio that they built up over their life is now their income source. And uh, you just wrote an article, the more you look at your portfolio is potentially hazardous to your wealth there. Yeah, and the, uh, unfortunately, retirees now have more time to do it. It's The problem is compounded by they no longer have income that they can earn to make up for losses. Uh, the, uh, so their stomachs are more susceptible to panic selling. Uh, and so that's not a good combination there. And the reason is, is, is pretty simple. Uh, we experience the pain of a loss at least twice as much on average as we experience the joy of an equal size gain. And the bigger the dollar amount, the larger that ratio gets. Uh, so that if you're losing 10 bucks, well, maybe that's the equivalent of the j- pain of, a, uh, of the joy of winning $20. But if you lose 100000 that's not the equivalent uh, of the joy of making 200000 you might need 500000 because, you know, the pain is going to be much more and make it a million dollars for a high net worth client who saw a 50% drop, so their $2 million portfolio went to one. I mean, there may be no number big enough that, you know, on the gain side, that would equate to that. And so the problem is, is simple. If you look at the market on a daily basis, you see losses almost half the time. So your pain meter, if you see the pain of a loss two to one, you're in a big deficit every day. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you get that. Uh, so if you, but if you look at it on a monthly basis, now you're down to maybe 40%. If you look at it quarterly, it's maybe 35%. If you look at annually, you're around 30%. So the less frequent you look, 
the less pain you feel, therefore the less likely you are to panic, right? And therefore, the more likely you are to end up with a better result. And that's really the key. So if you can't ignore the noise of the market, then you really should be like Rip Van Winkle and don't check your value. <laughs> That's Larry Swedrow, folks. we got to get out of here. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Uh, check us out on iTunes at Your Money, Your Wealth, or go to our website, purefinancial.com. For Big Al Clopin, I'm Joe Anderson. Larry, want to thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again next week.